To start, really, and I hope you noticed it in the title of this retreat, there's an ambiguity, and it was deliberate. Yeah, it's patience to love. Is it about patience or is it about love? Well, it's about both. I think this is, I hope, what's going to come through at the weekend, and what I'm saying in some of the practices we engage in. Patience is, within the Buddhist tradition, considered to be the absolute antidote, the absolute opposite, the antithesis, to hatred and anger. Now, we don't have to look too far in the contemporary world to see, of course, that hatred and anger are things which are extremely prevalent. They're prevalent in individual relationships, and they're, in, and they're prevalent in the relationships between countries and cultures and all sorts of things. So it's a big problem for us all, the problem of really learning to work with our anger and opening ourselves up to the possibility of love and kindness and compassion. These are the great virtues that Buddhism hold out of ways of being in the world which are too rarely manifested for us. Now, as many of you will know, the Buddha started off with a kind of diagnosis of our problem. And basically he's saying, you've got a problem. <laughs> and the problem we have is a problem of suffering, anxiety, distress, worry. I could give you a whole litany of terms um, the one that's usually used to translate this is suffering. However, I think sometimes that the word suffering overstates the case. If I say to you, you're suffering, many of you will say, no, I'm not. I might feel a bit irritated, I might feel a bit anxious, I might feel a bit distressed, but I'm not suffering. Suffering seems to be at the large end of the spectrum. Whereas actually, what characterizes most of our experiences in life, perhaps, I do say perhaps because it's something to be investigated, not something to be taken merely as a, a given. You have to investigate it in your own life. Is this perhaps is a kind of tremulous anxiety, irritation that runs through your life? It's there as a kind of constant background to the things that are going on. And really it's a sense of dissatisfaction with life. A sense of dissatisfaction with not getting what one wants. Not being with who one wants to be with. Not being where one wants to be. And I could go on. There's a kind of whole catalogue of things. Um, I had this forcibly reminded me when I was actually one rereading one of Oscar Wilde plays quite recently, and it's Lady Bracknell in Lady Windermere's Fan who says, um, there are only two great tragedies in life. One is not getting what one wants, and the other is getting what one wants. <laughs> and I think that says it all, in the sense that we are constantly dissatisfied. As a result, we are constantly irritated, and perhaps constantly angry in some way. 
The Buddhist path and the path of meditation, whether one wants to call it Buddhism or not, is, as far as I'm concerned, icing on the cake. But the path of meditation, the path of practice, is a path that was obviously laid out by the Buddha as being one which was to radically transform your life. I mean, really, to be quite honest, the practice of meditation, the practice of Buddhism, if one wants to call it that, it should seriously alter your life. Um, it should seriously affect it. It shouldn't be something that's just done in centres like this. And I should say more about that in the morning when we start to practice properly. So it's meant to change your life, it's meant to transform the mind. The Buddha delineates the problem that we have in a sense as a mental problem. A problem that we bring to our experience. A problem that we and kind of find at the heart of all experience that we are actually engaged in creating. There's a very famous verse at the beginning of probably the most translated of the Buddhist text, which is called Dhammapada, which says, Mind is the forerunner of all things. With a happy mind, certain things occur, and with an unhappy mind, certain other things will occur. And if you like, for those happy-minded individuals, the world is completely different from those unhappy-minded individuals. <coughs> One of the big problems that I've just kind of touched on is the problem of anger, possibly one of the largest problems that we have to deal with. It's a problem that obviously gives rise to aggression, to violence, to friction in relationships and obviously eventually perhaps to conflict. So anger is something that if we are to transform our minds we need to deal with. A moment of anger, it's often said in Buddhist traditions, can destroy the whole of one practice. A moment of anger can take us completely away and back to where we started from. Tibetans are very fond of a story, which I'll quickly relate to you, of a yard herder who's travelling in the Himalayas who comes across a, a, a hermit monk living in a cave. And he takes, him off, he takes himself off into the cave and chats to the monk. And they get on quite well and they share some tea together. It's a very good Tibetan tradition of sharing tea. And at the end of it, he's walking away and saying goodbye to this hermit monk and he looks over his shoulder and he says to this monk, um, by the way, go to hell. And the monk retorts very quickly, and you go to hell as well. And um, the person says to him, and I thought you were supposed to be practicing patience as your practice. And so, in other words, just this one moment can take and destroy a whole practice that we engage in. Just one moment of anger, that moment of the leaping force of the mind into a reaction. And part of the diagnosis in Buddhist psychology is of course that we very rarely act. We react continuously. And this is part of the problem, is that there is very little freedom in that and it is kind of just stimulus and response. And so if somebody is rude to us, we respond. We think we respond, we think we act. But actually we just react. And we react often with aggression, and in the 
very simple story, we react again with a kind of violence. Whereas, of course, true action might be to deal with the situation completely differently. And so what the Buddha and this path of meditation is holding out for us is the possibility of freedom. The freedom to act. The freedom to love. The freedom to care. The freedom to move into some compassionate relationship with the world. And I do say with the world because it's not just human beings, it's with all things, both human and non-human, all beings. And so that we learn to move through the world in a different way than the way that we often move at the moment. Well, of course, the, one of the kind of melting pots to see lack of patience, irritation, violence, aggression, and of course it's human relationships, which are often exhibiting all of these things, exhibiting all of these manifest qualities, or non-qualities perhaps I should say, of violence and aggression and anger and hatred and delusion and all sorts of things. And to develop true relationships means to look at the wellsprings of where the kind of obscurations occur that block us from seeing others, from entering into real relationships. And so the relationship itself just becomes another form of suffering, anxiety, distress, pain, irritation. So the whole path, the whole path of meditation, the whole path of mental transformation is meant to move us into a different sphere, into a different way of seeing, a different way of being. And it's to move us out from the habitual action or reaction. The patterns of reaction that we are engaged in, which appear to be circular and the word in Pali and Sanskrit, which is used to describe the situation, is called samsara. And the sun part of it in samsara indicates the circularity, going around in circles. In other words, that's our position, we're trapped, going around in circles, making mistakes again and again and again and again. Often in very similar ways, in very similar patterning, simply because we are in a sense programmed through our life situation to respond, to react in similar ways, given certain stimuli. And so to free ourselves from that, we have to see it, and we have to see it clearly. All too often, of course, where this repetition is enacted is in the field of human relationships, where people tend to make the same mistakes again and again and again, to react in a similar way to push these patterns to the forefront. Where there is really very little, little of what I call respectful living. Patience, this virtue which allows love to occur, patience allows the movement into some kind of much more respectful way of living in this world. Which, as I say, all too often can degenerate into simply patterns of reactivity. 
So faith and practice is considered to be at the heart of most of the traditions. Most of the traditions have it, and particularly in the Mahayana tradition, the traditions that of course Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism and Chinese Buddhism come from patience is one of the key virtues. The practice of forbearance or patience is key to this transformation of mind which we have to effect to live differently in the world. But the question we all have to ask ourselves, and I think this really is a big question, is do we want to live differently? Do we want to be in a different way? Uh, and that really is a big question, and only each of us can answer it individually. There can be no kind of general answer. We each have to examine our own lives and look at it in relation to our own lives. Because otherwise the practice is kind of just peripheral. It's not central to our lives. And the whole point about meditation practice, and I'll say something a little bit about that, is that it ought to be central. Now, I don't mean sitting on cushions has to be central to our lives. But the whole practice of developing insight, calmness, concentration, kindness, that has to be central to what we do in our daily lives. There's one word I love, and it's actually an English word that works quite well for change in relationship to Buddhist practice, which is the word practice. Most of the time when we're sitting in meditation halls like this, or if you do meditation at home, sitting formally on a cushion for your half an hour or 45 minutes or however long it is, you're just practicing. That's all you're doing. Practicing for actually taking it out into the world. Because that is where it counts. That's where it means something. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, developing kindness, for example, sitting on a cushion, one can feel very kind on a cushion, but rather to take it into the outside world is a much more difficult proposition. Uh, to be highly kindly to people and to behave in a patient manner with people rather than again reacting with irritability to the way that they are and responding irritably if they are irritable to you. And one of the things we know is you know, we like to spread our miseries around and uh, spread it and share it among each other. And so that's where it counts. This is where all these things count. Whatever you hear, whatever you do in a room like this, only means something when it's taken out into your ordinary daily activities. Nothing extraordinary, but your ordinary daily activities. If it can't survive in that world, or at least the attempt to, make it survive in that world, it can matter very little, the actual practice itself. If it's not to remain something which needs special conditions for its survival, such as meditation halls and formal practice and everything, then it's a kind of rarefied But, of course, the practice shouldn't be like that. The practice is there take out into ordinary life and to make us, as I say, coming back to something I said at the beginning, change our lives in a radical way, to make us live quite differently, or at least to make us think about living quite differently. To see things with a clarity, perhaps, 
that we haven't seen them before. To look at our reactive patterns. To look at the way irritation brings up almost almost as if there's a trigger just to set it off. I'm sure we've all been in that situation where we find ourselves in simply in the mode of being angry, being annoyed, being irritated by something, without any reflection whatsoever. And it's arisen and it's there and it's manifest in the world. So these reactive patterns, in a way, block us from seeing the world. In fact, they confine us. They narrow down our field of vision. They narrow down our field of being, our way of being with others. It becomes restricted. To act out of irritation, to act out of anger, to act out of all of these things, the Buddha says, and I think the real challenge to us in the West is never justified. There is no justification of righteous indignation, of righteous anger, or of any of these forms. Because the aim or the motivation, the intention behind the act of being angry, of being impatient, being irritable, is always to wound or to hurt. And even if you can't get at the other, the person who caused you this, the intention behind being angry is often one to wound and to hurt. And that's a real challenge, I think, in the Western world to us. Now, the Buddha is not saying it's not understandable why people get angry. Of course, it's perfectly understandable why they do it, but it doesn't make it justified. Understanding it and having reason for it doesn't make it justified. What the Buddha really is offering us is a radical, radically different way of being in the world. I think it is exemplified actually in the figure of the Dalai Lama, who when asked about his religion said, well my religion is kindness. And you can forget about all the other stuff. If it doesn't manifest as kindness, then forget it. You know, that really is the bottom line. And so, really at the heart of Buddhist practice is being practice of kindness and compassion. And compassion is a way of knowing the world. It's a way of seeing the world quite differently. It's different obviously from the eye, the, the way of seeing which is immured, entrenched in anger and irritation and delusion and greed. And all of these things that Buddhism talks about. Because it says you've got a problem and the problem actually is a problem that's caused by hatred or aversion and greed and ultimately by a kind of delusive way of being and, and ignorant about the way things actually are and the actual title Buddha in many ways is a challenge to us because you know, the Buddha or Buddha is not a name it's an epithet, it's a title that's given to somebody and it means not enlightened one uh, as often it's translated, but it means awakened one. The one who has woken up. And that's a challenge to us. Because it means if the Buddha has woken up, then you and I, and people like us, are half asleep, if not totally asleep, most of the time. Staggering our way through the world, kind of bumping into things, not really knowing how they are. 
not really seeing them correctly. And so the one thing that the Buddha talks about is waking up to the way things are, seeing them as they are, seeing them in, for example, their impermanence. That all things are impermanent. All things are changing. Nothing remains the same. And even on my visit back to Guy House, I noticed something's changed every time I come back. Um, something's being moved, or something's being shifted, it's in a different place, or the statues are over in different places, and things like that. Very insignificant things, but they're changing. The world itself is continuously changing. We are changing. One of the things that's quite difficult, isn't it, to cope with. We respond often with fear to change. We don't like it. It's something we're averse to. We particularly don't like it in the field of human relationships often, when another changes. It's sad, isn't it, when somebody perhaps has been living with somebody for a long, long period of time, they wake up one morning and say, you've changed. Surprise, surprise. Change is going on continuously. But we don't see it because we fix. We try to attempt to solidify, to make status that which is continuously moving and changing. I've often said in this room, when I've been teaching here, that the truth of impermanence that the Buddha teaches, and one of the things we have to wake up to, is not a difficult intellectual thing to comprehend. We, most of us can understand it quite easily, can't we? You know, when I say to you, everything is changing, you, know, you go, oh, probably yes. Or perhaps some things are changing a little bit quicker than others, but in general most things change. And we can comprehend that in a way which actually doesn't touch our emotions whatsoever. So we understand it intellectually. We don't understand it with our sense of being. We don't understand it with our sense of emotion. It's not an emotional held understanding. So therefore when we're confronted with change again, we get upset by it. We don't live it. Remember this is part of the problem that I'm talking about. Is that, well I could actually say, yeah, give you most of the teachings of Buddhism probably in the next half an hour, and they're not that difficult to understand. The real challenge to this is to live it. I can talk about kindness and compassion as a way of perhaps moving much more gracefully through the world. And it really does make us move much more gracefully through the world. And you can comprehend that, I'm sure. You have to be kind to others, to be kind as you move through the world, to see the world with a compassionate eye and not with the eye of violence and aggression. To make your gestures, your way of being in the world, a much more gentle way of being. That doesn't mean sloppy, by the way, I might add. To be gentle doesn't mean to be inactive. It can often actually mean to be extremely active, and to be extremely dynamic, but when necessary. And that doesn't necessarily have to equate with violence and aggression. And I think we can all understand that, can't we? I don't think it's again, again a difficult concept to get our heads around, to actually become aware that this movement through life can be aided, aided a lot better by decreasing our levels of aggression, by decreasing our levels of irritability in this world and so that we actually begin to move harmoniously through it. Easy to say, difficult to do, isn't it? Very much more difficult to do, particularly in the field of human relationships. 
The one thing I'm probably you've noticed is that we're not in a world alone. Uh, this led the um, French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre to actually declare, of course, that hell was other, hell was others, basically. Hell were other people. Uh, his vision of hell was actually being trapped in a room with four other people. Yeah. That human relationships can be fraught and difficult and they can be hellish, there is no doubt about it. Yet, that is the challenge again. The challenge is not to develop some kind of isolated calm sitting upon a cushion, it's to take any calm that you might develop, any insight that you might develop, any kindness that you might develop in a kind of imaginative leap that we do often in meditative exercises and to take it out into the world. It means actually, and it means actually to change our behaviour in this world. To actually change our way of being. If we don't, then things will continue. And that is the nature, in Buddhist terms, of what is called sankara, of going round and round and round. We find ourselves in those situations again and again and again. And we will continue to do so. Not exactly the same, but similar. Because they have a similar patterning to them, a similar feel. And so the Buddha is saying, where well, is the problem? And this problem is the problem of the word he uses is dukkha. It's a part of the term, which actually is wonderful etymologically. I mean, I don't like going into this and these kind of things, but etymologically is a wonderful word because it means a dirty hole. That's the place we find ourselves in. It's a kind of dirty space. It's actually used in, in those languages to describe the kind of bit where the axle goes into a hole and it's packed with grease and grit. And so it's irritable. Because all of the kind of movement, circularity in that is grinding away. And once I had it described to me that of course the pain that we experience, the frustration that we experience in this world isn't, as this particular teacher said to me, isn't despite like being stabbed in the back, it's not really sharp and it's not really painful, tragedies do occur, but for most of us our experience isn't like that. He said, imagine it's more like this, he said it's like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. It doesn't start off very painful, does <laughs> it? The more and more you do it, the more painful it becomes. And so, it's how we see from engaging in this repetitive activity to release ourselves from it, to find some freedom and some space. That's the mental transformation we're talking about that has to be affected. Now, I'm going to hopefully shock some of you by saying the Buddhists don't meditate. What they do is cultivate. That's the actual word that's used and they've used a translator of meditation actually means to cultivate. So what we attempt to do is to cultivate. Cultivate calmness, cultivate insight, and cultivate kindness and compassion. In other words, what it means is to actualize them. It doesn't mean to go away and think about them. It doesn't mean to kind of ponder them as interesting questions. It means to actually do it. To go ahead and do it. That's what's really required of us, isn't it? 
There's that freeing response is to move into a world where we can actually enact those things, to do them. And so what the possibility is being held out through this practice of cultivation, through this practice of patience and love and kindness and compassion, is actualizing those things in our daily lives. Doing them, in other words. There's lots of agrarian metaphors in Buddhism, probably because of the time the Buddha lived, there was a change over from agricultural economies to urban economies. And so you get all these agricultural metaphors that are being used, you know, uprooting things, growing things, things fruiting at various times, like karma. And so it's important for us to, in a sense, see those agricultural metaphors and see them as, as actualizing, to grow, to manifest, to bring into being. And so the practice is one of constantly trying to bring into being. Now, where it's very, very important to them is in the field of human relationships, of dealing with others. We perpetuate problems, don't we, for ourselves through our habit patterns, through our aggression, through our self-grasping. One of the things that the Buddha taught very strongly about was the letting go of self, was the letting go of this striving is grasping after a self. What we might call in the West, although he doesn't use the word because it doesn't exist in his language, what we call egotism, narcissism. This business of you know, kind of being entrapped within our own image, where I am the centre of the universe. Where there is that feeling of being the centre of the universe, there can be no real relation. Because you are only something for me in that relation. You are only what I want you to be. And if you're not being it, then I can't be in relation with you. And that's a big problem. In other words, what generally we have are two negatives and passion. And perhaps we call it love, but often it turns into all too easily into its opposite, doesn't it? Into aversion and hatred. And into aggression and violence. Because it never really is love. Because love means to care, to let go, to see the other. <coughs> to see the other means to relinquish this kind of peculiarity we have of being turned in on ourselves. Because we can only see ourselves. And the German language poet Rilke, in one of his elegies, talked about this and said, human beings are very peculiar beings. Unlike most animals, animals tend to look out onto an open field, onto an open plain. Whereas human beings from a very early age are turned around looking into themselves, um, in a kind of narcissistic gaze. This has been pointed out, I think, by not just people within Buddhism, but within the field of Western psychology and psychoanalysis. In fact, uh, the French um, psychoanalyst Jean Lacan um, basically came up with the idea that apes were far more intelligent than humans. And the reason for this was was the actual kind of 
behavior that was demonstrated when you handed an ape a mirror. Because what actually happened with an ape when you handed it a mirror, apparently, was it kind of picked up the mirror, looked into it, got bored, looked around the back, and lost interest completely. Well, human beings tend to pick up the mirror, look into it, forever. <laughs> In other words, they're staring into their own reflection forever. And if you know your myth of Narcissus, then the myth of Narcissus is one, of course, of a character who falls in love with his own reflection, falls into the pool and drowns on one account. And in a sense, that's what we're doing. We're drowning in ourselves, full of ourselves. So these possibilities, and this is all probably sounding extremely negative, it's not meant to, because we have to start from where we are. To move forward, perhaps we have to diagnose the problem, to see where we are. And all the Buddha's doing in talking in these ways, and means how to try to explicate them, is to perhaps begin to give us a grasp, a glimpse of perhaps where we are. And only you can find out that for yourself. But the chief, or the key thing to all of this is to, from the ground of understanding the problem, is then learn to move forward. To use the kind of parlance or the language or psychotherapist, it's really to, to own where you are, to actually see the picture, but then to move forward from that, from that understanding. But we have to see it. We have to see the problem. Because otherwise, the mistakes will keep occurring, because we are kind of blind to them. So, one of the things we do in meditative situations is, in a sense, begin to have insight into the problems, the way that we grasp after things, the way that we delineate them in terms of, for example, pleasant and unpleasant, good and bad, all the way we dichotomize the world, the way we divide it up. What we mean is good or bad for me, generally. Grasping after the me being the forefront of the whole world. In fact, for most of us, the world is me. That is the world. It's my world, you know, using philosophical jargon, it's very solipsistic. So, to really move into relationship, to really move into relationship, not just with others, but with the world, to really begin to see, to start, to taste, to touch, to begin to really move out from ourselves, to mean to relinquish self, to mean to relinquish self-grasping. If we don't do that, then we live a very kind of denatured existence. In fact, I don't know if any of you really pondered this, you know, our reactivity in particular, the way we react to things, be they external, in terms of what's going on around us, might be a beautiful sunset, might be the other person who you're supposedly love or in a relationship with, is how often do we actually act or respond rather than react? And that's the question. And again, perhaps it's a question that ought to be at the forefront of what we're thinking about over the weekend. Because if anger is reactivity, perhaps patience is the opposite of that. It's the opposite of simply reacting. 
Franz Weber, um, who's very great writer within the Mahayana tradition, has a wonderful saying. One actually, the Dalai Lama is very um, fond of quoting. I'll paraphrase it rather than actually directly quote it. It says basically something like this: If you can do something about it, why worry? If you can't do something about it, why worry? In other words, the worrying is simple reaction. That's all. To break free, can you imagine what it would be like to break free of those patterns? (laughs) If you can't do something about it, why worry? If you can do something about it, why worry? In other words, to lessen the mental distress that goes on in any situation. That requires, that is a form of patience. Patience is also respect as well. And perhaps another way of talking about it is a form of respectful living. Love in its genuine form, allied to the sort of patience I'm talking about, can also be another form of respectful living. But to do that we have to see the problem, diagnose the problem for ourselves, and wish to do something about it. The most basic starting point. We have to wish to do something about it. We have to wish to move into another way of being. Because like any kind of addiction, if we're addicted to our habits, to our forms of stimulation, then we have to recognize that it is an addiction. That we're addicted to certain forms of behavior. We're addicted to certain stimuli. And I'm not talking about the obvious ones. We have to recognize that we have a problem in order to relinquish it or to move towards the relinquishment of it. Without that recognition, no movement can occur. So that has to be at the forefront. In other words, again, coming back to my starting point, the practice has to seriously change your life. Or at least make you want to seriously change your life. Now we start off by stilling the mind learning to fill the mind. Now, you can see how important that is in terms of patience. When we're getting angry, irritable about things that we have no control over, I mean, let's take the obvious one, being stuck in something like a traffic jam. You can rant and you can rave and you can scream and you can do all the things that possibly we do in those situations. But will it benefit you? Not one iota. It won't make you feel better. It certainly won't make those around you feel better. It won't make you feel better because in a sense it's a kind of futile aggression which is directed and really comes about rebounding back at you. Patience and calmness and stillness therefore become a good way of dealing with those situations and learning to cultivate stillness. <coughs> now, one of the things I'll talk about... It's about learning to, learning to be with, with, with what's happening in the present. I'm sorry I'm having a really strong reaction. Mm-hmm. Well, it is learning to be what is there in the present, yes. Rather than trying to do something other than what actually what one is or what's actually happening in the moment. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're saying that there's something really wrong with us and we've got to be different. And we have to really 
That's okay. No, I mean, what I'm saying is we have to learn to recognize what is going on for change to occur. That is what I'm saying. I understood that when we really are we fully present with something like anger, then naturally it, it will it will transform it, it will transform it will transform it will only transform, and I, I would say this, and I think, I, mean, I think you're absolutely right, I'm not, I wouldn't disagree with you in the slightest, it's being with what is, you have to be, and I was going to say something about that, I can see in a second. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, fine. To be with what is, is to be there, but to not grasp, and not to reject. And that's the important point about it. So in other words, to see where you are, is to acknowledge at this moment, anger if it's arising, or whatever the negative emotion might be, because that's where you are. But it's not to grasp after it, and that's the problem. For most of us, it's not the anger that's the problem, it's the grasping after it that's the problem, or whatever the negative emotion. Anger is the one that's frequently used, and I've used it a lot this evening. To acknowledge it fully, not to repress it. This is part of the Buddha thing, not to repress it, because I often joke about this and say, you can't keep a good repression down, it will just come out somewhere else. It will just come out in another form. So those are the two poles you're trying to move from, grasping after or repressing. And so in other words, what we're saying is that the anger itself will transform only because in a sense it has a natural life. It arises, as the Buddha says, and all mental states arise, and then they pass away. And then something else arises and they pass away. It might be another moment of anger, but it might have a different intensity to it. It'll arise and pass away. It's a freeing motion. And that's, in a sense, what we're learning to do, is to, to free ourselves from the attachment to the anger and the grasping after it. The way it's often described, and Tibetan particularly described it this way, is in a sense we have fly paper mind. You know, the mind is like this, and a thought comes in, and it's fixed. And then we circle around and round and round. Stuck on the fly paper. And so, yes, it's acknowledgement of what is going on. That's absolutely crucial. And I was going to say this, because in the kind of calming practices that we'll do tomorrow, just at the beginning, then it's not trying, forcing to create a calm mind. It's not to do that at all. If the mind is in turmoil, and unfortunately, you know, even these words, you know, when I say to you something like, we're going to do some calming practices, you think, oh great, I'm going to be sitting there, I'm going to be nice and calm. Not actually the case, mostly. What happens is we actually discover the mind in turmoil. The mind doing all sorts of things. And so it's this movement of acknowledgement of the what is going on. We attempt to bring ourselves back to an object, usually the breath, as a way, in a sense, of trying to focus, and if you drift away, then you try to bring it back to focus again. And it's this movement of seeing what is going on and bringing ourselves back to focus. However, in a way, what I would say to all of you, and this is, I was going to say this in the morning, perhaps as well, since you brought it up to say it tonight, is that we're not seeking to enforce calmness on the mind. Calmness will come to you. It will only come by a lack of grasping and a lack of rejecting. In other words, the two poles which we're normally engaged in, simply grasping after attraction and aversion to what is actually happening. There is a kind of honesty to this practice. 
and honesty which is the acknowledgement of the what is happening. If the mind is in turmoil, it is in turmoil. That is what is happening. If it's angry, that is what is happening. Now, that doesn't mean to indulge it. doesn't mean to grasp after it. That's what we mean by, in a sense, grasping after it, indulging. Calmness only comes by the relinquishment of grasping and thrusting away, pushing away. So in a way, what I would describe the process of calming is not an enforcement, but a calming that comes upon you, comes to you, in a way. The mind itself is a constant series of moments of arising and passing away and arising and passing away. And if we have this idealism, as often I encounter and I teach, of thinking that we are going to get calm because we're doing calming meditation, then it can actually stop us from seeing the what is going on. And the whole point about all Buddhist practice is to observe. And as I was saying, in relationship to our ordinary daily lives, is actually see what is going on in our ordinary daily lives, with the possibility opening up of change. The possibility opening up of change. If I don't see it, then it can't be the possibility of behaving differently. So I have to see it. I have to act from where I am. I hope this is answering a little bit of some problems you're having with what I say. So you have to act from where you are. Please, please ask questions about that. Well, I guess the comment is also, I think for me, what's been really important and very painful as well is to, is to really see the consequences yeah. of, of, of my unskillful behaviour or my kind of reactive behaviour, to really let in and really see very clearly the consequences, particularly uh, to those people that I that I actually care about, yeah. that I profess to care about, and love to, to, to really to, to not only see what is happening in me, but to see the impact that that, that, that has on the world around me, yeah. and to let that to let that in, that it can, you know, that I have the capacity to be quite destructive to things that I actually care about. And that, for me, is a great has become a, quite a, a great motivator for the attempt. Well, I think I think that's right. So to actually want to want to want to see, I mean, just even to take that movement to want to see the consequences of our actions is, in a sense, to move partly away from ourselves. Yeah. In other words, you suddenly started to decenter yourself yeah. from being the centre of the universe and the centre of control, and thinking about others, thinking about others. That's all you're saying in a way. Thinking about what this kind of action will have an effect on another person is to decenter yourself slightly. Now it's interesting of course that the whole idea of compassion and kindness in, in Buddhist practice is based on the idea of literally turning outward. I mean that's I won't go into it, but the actual etymology of the word means to turn outward and, and see another. That helps me in terms of bringing together some kind of sense of the Buddhist the Buddhist um, path that I'm beginning to try and understand and also the psychotherapeutic path that is uh, quite useful for well, certainly a lot of people that I know have been useful for which is in some ways trying to build a sense of self mm. but not a sense of self which is which is fixed and defensive that's the main that's the main thing I mean, from the Buddhist perspective it's, it's the idea of a fixed that's the problem. Self isn't the problem if it's held 
as being what it is, which is the whole process of change, of adaptation. Because when it's held to be fixed and central and kind of stagnant, then it becomes a problem. I mean, that's really the problem with Buddhist diagnosing. Because it becomes, if you like, the centre out of which everything operates. The world is seen only through that. Now, one of the things, of course, that we have now instead of selves is persons. In fact, that's a very good title of the book called Selfless Persons, uh, which is about this Buddhist notion. And that's exactly what we have. We have persons without selves. In other words, we have persons with personalities, with ways and traits and ways of being, but not fit. Mm. Not held as being fit. In other words, in terms of our own life, we're seeing it very practical, is, okay, I'm like this now, but I can be different. Yeah. And that's what I said, is I think an exciting possibility about the Buddhist work. So what you're talking about really is giving up a sense of a fixed self. Yeah, that's right. Giving up fixity. Yeah. Becoming, I mean, really, is becoming who you already are. Oh. Becoming who you already are is fluid. Mm. In a sense, it's owning that fluidity. Now, that fluidity, of course, can take us down quite dangerous paths in terms of unskillful action, but it can take us into the path of Buddhism leading to skillful action. Mm. For most of us, it's a mixture. Okay, we do bits of skillful action and a lot of unskillful action, or a lot of un- a lot of skillful action and a bit of unskillful action. It's, it's variable, isn't it? This is the way that we move through life. Mm. But, um, we see ourselves very much in terms of traits. Now I think you you might have been in the group this afternoon, you can see this very strongly, can't you, when, for example, we believe we are our habits. The ways that we do things. And you see this very, very clearly, don't you, when somebody, for example, questions you about a habit that you have, you get quite defensive about it. Well, that's the way I am. (laughs) And things like this. Whereas habits themselves are adventitious, and given time, they often change. Given time, they often change. I mean, Rilke, the poet Rilke, has a wonderful term for it, because it's the habit that moved in and didn't leave. You know, it kind of comes in and sticks around for a while. But it's much more fluid than that, because it actually will change through time. And so there is really what the Buddha is saying, there is no fixed centre. There is no thing, in a sense, there. Mm. There's no thing there. At all. And, just to stress something I was saying, which I do think is very important, this can lead to our sense of either closure or openness. Closure to the world because I can only see it in this way and that's the way I am. And I'm sending it out to make a point. In other words, I'm rigid, I'm fixed, I'm dogmatic, I'm opinionated about the world, um, or I can open myself up to possibility, to different, to other ways of being. Even the poet Keats talked about this. In other words, most of us are looking for certainty in this world, looking for fixed certainty. Now, this is the way the world is. I see it in this way. This is kind of the view that I have. It's my opinion, it's my view of the way the world is. In a search for certainty, trying to nail things down. 
because obviously certainly you will give us a sense of security, albeit a false sense of security from the Buddhist point of view, but it will give you a sense of security. And even Keats talked about opening ourselves up to negative, what he called negative capability. In other words, to thinking the possibility that we might be wrong about things. Now, in a sense, that's a very Buddhist way of thinking. Um, a philosopher comes along, or a thinker, mystic, in the first century, second century of the Christian era, common era, called Nagarjuna, who says, give up holding views. None of them are right. Being and the world can only be experienced. It can't be talked about. Any talking about it is a view and is related to self-grasping. He said, interestingly, I can't be faulted. I have no view. <laughs> a little disingenuous, I think, but no one likes it. If you're too safe, you don't move. If you're too secure, you don't move. If you feel unsafe, you won't move either. Mm-hmm. In Buddhist terms, that's why there's such a stress on community. The importance of people who are doing it with you. Um, the term for it obviously usually meant the monastic community originally. And it's what's called Sangha. And so the stress is on like-minded people who were working in the same way. And so that goes from people who are teaching, who are also practitioners, one has to remember, to people who are studying, to people who are in ordinary lay life, to, you know, all the way down to the hierarchy. In a sense, it's meant to be a supportive system. And yes, that's where your safety lies, in your sangha, in your community. But you're not searching for it in some senses in terms of certainty. That's the difference. Yeah. It's in a way grounding ourselves on our sense of our interdependence, in our being able to help each other in our movement forward. So it's a supporting system that's meant to be there. Now obviously much more difficult in the West. It was there in traditional communities and traditional cultures, certainly in the monastic communities. In the monastic communities, there's a marvellous system of, of holding together those who are practicing. In the West, it's developing. Places like Gaia House are part of that, in a sense, developing community in the West, where you can find support. You can find, in some sense, you can let yourself go perhaps in a little into uncertainty because you've got something supporting and holding you while you do it. But I agree with you, I think it is necessary. Um, otherwise, it's just huge steps to take into an unknown. But the important thing is we still have to take those steps into the unknown, occasionally, because the known keeps the track. Um, 
the desire, and the answer, the desire to be in the middle of that dissolution. Uh, how does one remain? I mean, if one wants to dissolve, how do you dissolve? Well, we're not talking about dissolving, are we? <laughs> I have a vision of an ice cube melting at this point in time. But we're not dissolving. No, what we under, what we're doing is understanding. Remember the Buddha's primary statement: to understand and to see the way things are. Mm-hmm. So this business about the self is not kind of dissolving the self; it's just seeing it as it actually is, not as something solid, but something which is in process. And that would be enough to see it as it is. In other words, once you see it as it is, you cease to grasp after it. Because you find there is nothing to grasp after. There's nothing solid to grasp after. You you can only grasp after something that's solid, isn't it? And so really this is a correction of our kind of way of seeing. Where normally we see solidity, the Buddha is saying there is actually process. And if you see that as process, then you'll see it as, in a sense, not worth the investment of trying to grasp after. You will live the process. I'll try and put this in another point, because the Buddha also says that not only are we lacking self, or essentiality, because that's really what he's talking about, but everything lacks essentiality. Everything. Yet, we operate in the world in a way that seems to attribute essentiality essentiality to things. Now, let me take a very easy example here. When we say, when we use a kind of moral, ethical terminology such as good and bad, and we attribute it often to people, don't we? And, and certainly in the kind of tabloid press in that case, you know, when anybody is a court for doing something horrific, evil is usually plastered all over the front page, you know, this person is evil. In other words, their essential being is evil. Essentially, that's what they are. The Buddha is saying there's no such thing. This person has committed evil deeds, but there's not something essentially evil there. Because even that is subject to change or the possibility of it, at least. When we talk about something as being good or bad, beautiful or ugly, these are just relative terms, which change. You can see them through culture, don't we? What we attribute as being beautiful and ugly to changes. Our perceptions of it change through cultural history. Yet, when we say it, we're not kind of just implying that this is adventitious, this attribution of this person is beautiful or they're ugly or whatever, it's almost like they're essentially bad. And really what the Buddha is saying is there's no essentiality to it. You know, if something is beautiful and therefore desirable, you grasp after it if you really believe it's essentially that. You try to cling to it, hold on to it, want it, desire it. If something is ugly, then you're repulsed by it, you don't want it, you don't want to know anything about it, you reject it. What the Buddha is trying to say is those are the forms of conditioning. That's all. That there is nothing essentially beautiful or ugly. 
And again, that makes the world much, much more open to it. In other words, we're breaking through dualistic thinking. The dualism that we are constantly entrapped within of dividing the world up. The dualism, by the way, are so pervasive in our culture, so operative in our culture, um, it almost pervades our total way of thinking in terms of either something is this or it's that. That's what I call George Bushism. You're either for me or against me. There's kind of no middle way <laughs> here. There's no middle way at all. And that's exactly what the Buddha is offering as a challenge. There's a middle way between that kind of thinking. Yeah, I joke about it, but in a sense it's very indicative of Western thinking because um, if we go back in the history of Western thought, we have Aristotle, and Aristotle talks about the law of the excluded middle in logic. There is no middle. Either something is this or it is that. If you say it's both, it's a contradiction. And therefore, it's not that. What the Buddha is saying, actually, we have to exclude the extremes and look for the middle. In fact, the extremes are philosophical extremes in the sense of being something always is, essentialism, which I'm talking about as well, can't change, or annihilationism, which is something that is destroyed completely and utterly and irrevocably. And the Buddha argues against both of those for the middle way, between those extremes. And so it's this treading of the middle path which is very difficult given a culture that thinks normally just in terms of the is and the is not. Yeah. And that's the challenge. Yeah. When you talk about living, you
doesn't claim to want to eradicate those things. What he claims to want to eradicate is Dukkha. Now, Dukkha isn't equated with those physical happenings. Dukkha is, if you like, the mental additive that we add to those physical happenings. In other words, it's the state of mind we get ourselves into. Take a very simple example. And I'll do this through something in the Pali Canon, which is very interesting. It says in one of the suttas in the Pali Canon, um, called Sutta of the Stone Splinter, it's in the Sangeeta Nikaya. Because the Buddha's walking along the road, and for certain reasons, which I won't go into, he steps on a shard of stone. And it says it penetrates his foot. And it says it causes the Buddha immense pain but no Dukkha. Now I think that gets us very clear that Dukkha is something that we bring to the experience of the physical pain. In other words, it's the mind being made extremely distressed, unhappy, anxious, um, perhaps in our world experience might be saying, why did I tread on this stone splinter as opposed to the person in front of me? <laughs> or something of that sort. In other words, it's the railing that we do against it. And so, Dukkha isn't to be equated literally with physical pain, literally with the kind of murder and mayhem and the things that you're talking about. So, yes, we do have to take in those other aspects of the world. But what the Buddha is really trying to say is, it doesn't help if our minds get absolutely, totally distressed by that other side of experience as well. It remains in some kind of equanimity and in the cases where we can do something about it, to do something about it. Not out of anger, not out of frustration, not out of irritation, but out of compassion to actually act in instances where we can deal with physical distress and suffering and pain and everything else. So yes, it does mean a full appreciation of what's going on. The reason why I emphasise the other aspects is because they do get lost in our experience. Actually, with the predominance of the media, um, actually what seems to dominate a lot of our consciousness is the murder and the mayhem and the everything else and the kind of impotent rage that people get into about what's going on in world events. And what gets missed out is often the basic sense of being. You know, the joy out being. Of course there is all that distress and suffering in the world as well. And you know, the Buddha is not saying ignore it. He's actually saying we have to take the whole lot. But as the Tibetan mystic Milarepa says, you know, to be happy is to be happy with whatever appears. In other words, the mind is equitable. Whatever happens, whatever appears before one's mind. In fact, often what happens in the case of the distress, it hampers us being able to do anything about it because we don't really see it because the mind gets distressed, it gets blocked, it gets anguished, and therefore we stop doing things. And so dukkha is not literally physical pain. I think it would be unrealistic. The position think, I mean, think of the story of the Nepali Canon. The Buddha gets old, he suffers immense pain, and he dies. Yeah changes in the later history of the Buddhist tradition as to how the Buddha dealt with. But in the Pali Canon, it's very clear 
the Buddha goes through the same process as everybody else, he does so because the mind is not distressed by it. And I think that's the teaching, really, out of that. Okay, I think we'll finish there because we have a short walking session or stretching the leg session, whichever you want to say, and then we'll come in for a final meditation to finish off the evening and we'll do some metta looking kindness to finish the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.